Good morning, everyone. Well, I have one more announcement that I want to make, and it's, uh, it already happened yesterday, but it involves two of our staff members here at the church. Uh, yesterday, John Esparza and Molly Goldstein got engaged. Uh, we're so excited for them. We got to be part of yesterday and see the proposal, and just so exciting. Love these two and what God's uh, doing in them and through them, and can't wait for their marriage. And uh, so we don't know when it's going to be yet, but I think this week a date will get set. But just excited. Just when you see them today, be sure to encourage them and pour out your love upon them. So love those two. You guys are awesome. All right, well, let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, and today we're going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter as we continue on with part two of the subject we began talking about last week. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that we spent some time talking about this mysterious man named Melchizedek and how he resembles the Son of God in that he is both a king and a priest. Uh, now, if you weren't here with us last week to uh, catch part one, don't worry. I'm going to bring us up to speed a little bit before we really dive in. So with your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to read the verses uh, that we'll consider today. Uh, starting in Hebrews 7 verse 11, let's now read down to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. It says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the other hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, 
and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this truth about who you are and about what you have done for us. And we thank you that even right now, as we're praying to you, Lord, we know that you are in the heavens praying for us. You live to make intercession for us as you serve eternally as both our king and our priest. And God, I pray that you would speak to your people today through your word, by your Holy Spirit, and I pray that we would understand these wonderful truths about who you are and and who we are in you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you can tell, there is still a lot of meat on this bone. And we know that this chapter about Melchizedek is meaty, and the writer of Hebrews was intentional about that because he said earlier that solid food is for the mature. So these things about the priesthood of Melchizedek, he did say at one point, were hard to explain. And so if everything that we read just kind of seemed like a bit of a mush to you, uh, we're going to take some time to explain it. And what we know about Melchizedek is not really a lot. There's not a lot about him in the Bible. Yet when the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5 that these things are hard to explain, it's not because, you know, there's only three verses in Genesis chapter 14 and one verse in Psalm 110 about this guy Melchizedek. But he's saying it's hard to explain more because the hearers of God's word had become dull in their hearing. You know, the word of God was not penetrating the hearts and the minds of the people like it had before. But that's not going to be the case for us, is it? Right? We are here gathered to hear God's word, and I've been hearing from many of you that this is a church that is hungry for the word of God, that we want to have the meat of God's word nourishing our souls. And so just as a reminder, this section that we're covering today, it is meaty, but we can be a people who are skilled in the word of righteousness, and we can be a people who are attentive to hear God's word and to hear it with faith. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try to get all of the meat off of this bone in Hebrews chapter 7 so that we can grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ, and so that we can continue to grow in spiritual maturity in him. So is that what you're looking to get today? All right, good. Then draw your attention to verse 11 as we dive into more of this truth about how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says this, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? All right, so this chapter is filled with transition words, words 
like the word now that we see at the beginning of verse 11. And the reason for these transition words is because a strong case is being built for the superiority of Jesus Christ. One of the ways that Jesus is superior or greater or better, as we've already seen in this letter, that he is the greater prophet. He's better than angels. He's greater than Moses. He even provides a better rest than Joshua. Is that we see here that Jesus is of a better priesthood. A priesthood that is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And at this point, uh, we, we've seen that there's these verses that we've looked at last week that tell us about his greatness. We saw how Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek and how Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And we read a verse there that said it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So he established that Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priesthood. But we've come to understand, right, that the whole reason for why Melchizedek is even brought into this letter is not because of the greatness of Melchizedek, even though he was a great man, right? Melchizedek was such a great man, in fact, that Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, recognized Melchizedek's greatness when he gave him a tenth of the spoils of war in Genesis chapter 14, So while Melchizedek was great, and Abraham was really great, and even Levi and Aaron and their priesthood was great, the point that is being made is this, Jesus is greater still. And if Jesus is greater, and if he's of a greater priesthood, which is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, then why in the world would these Hebrews be turning back to something lesser? Why would they leave Jesus behind and and neglect so great an offer of salvation through Jesus Christ to turn back to, to the system of the Jewish law? And that is what these early Hebrew Christians were being tempted to do. Because of discouragement, because of persecution, Because of spiritual immaturity, the Hebrews were being tempted to turn back to the safe and the comfortable place of embracing the old covenant, going back to the laws and the ceremonies and the sacrifices that they once observed. And so the writer is warning them, don't do that. You have something better in Jesus, and the Spirit warns us now of doing such a thing, of of just leaving the greatness of Jesus behind for anything that is less than him. And so this is why we're being shown that Jesus is far better and far more superior, so that we would not look anywhere else for eternal salvation. Because eternal salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. Salvation can't be found anywhere else. It can't be found in anyone else. And so this man, Melchizedek, who had no record of genealogy, he had no beginning of days nor end of life, but resembled the Son of God in that he continues a priest forever. So Jesus is our great high priest who lives forever 
And that was made possible because of another priesthood that existed outside of the Levitical priesthood. That should bring us up to speed based off of last week. If you are lost and confused, you might need to go back and listen to last week's message. But let's look again at verse 11, where it says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it we receive, the people receive the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So this is what you would call a rhetorical question, right? Right? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> so enough evidence has already been given to prove the priesthood of Melchizedek, of it being a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And why is that? Well, aside from what was already stated in verses 1 through 10, verse 11 is now telling us that, listen, perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Well, then, if, if the Levitical law could not perfect what did we get from the Levitical priesthood? Well, we got the law. It was under the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God brought forth a tribe among the children of Israel called the Levites. And from that tribe came Moses and Aaron. And it was under the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that was uh, led by that man Aaron, Moses' brother, under the Aaronic priesthood, or you could even say the Levitical priesthood, they're kind of synonymous, it was under that that the people received the law of God. You remember, right, when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God came and gave the people the law, right? Well, the laws and the ceremonies and the sacrifices that we read about in our Old Testament Bible, for instance, in the book of Leviticus, you see the Levitical law. God came to his people under that priesthood, under the priesthood of the order of Aaron to give the people the law. But the law did not bring perfection to the people of God, as we're going to see more in just a moment. So what did the law do? Well, the law revealed sin. This is very important to understand theologically. What did the law and the commands of the Old Testament, what did they bring us? They brought us a revelation of our sin. And because God's law reveals sin, it also revealed to us a need for a holy priest who could make God's people perfect by sacrifice. And so, animal sacrifices were made under the Levitical law by priests but those sacrifices were made daily, first for the sins of the priests and then for the sins of the people. But those sacrifices were never able to make anyone perfect. Sin still remained, even after those sacrifices. And so these sacrifices that were called for in the law of God, they only temporarily satisfied. And it, it only revealed to God's people more and more sin and more and more need of a savior. And therefore, had the Levitical priesthood brought about perfection, 
what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? But there still was a need, right? And that is why Jesus Christ has risen up as a priest forever. And it is only by Jesus, our great high priest, and the sacrificial lamb that can be to us the one who redeems, redeems us from the curse of the law and who can make us perfect because of his perfect sacrifice. Is everything sort of clicking together now? Namely, that Jesus shed his blood and died upon a cross to remove the curse of sin, which the law could not do. The law only revealed sin. It could not remove the curse of sin. In fact, it was the law that brought the curse of sin. And so verse 12 says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I hope that this verse makes you smile because it makes me smile. This scripture tells me that I am no longer under the law because the law could not save anyone. The law was simply a tutor that showed me my sin and led me to Jesus. And it was Jesus who put an end to the law of sin and death when he established the new covenant in his blood where the law of God is now written upon the fleshly tablet of my heart. So I'm not under the law of sin and death anymore. Well, then what am I under? I'm under the leading of the Holy Spirit and I have life in Jesus Christ. I now walk by grace through faith in my Savior Jesus, who redeemed me from the law, put a new song in my heart so that I can praise my king and priest forever. And the priesthood of Levi after the order of Aaron, it had its time and it had its place in God's redemptive plan, but it was only there to point to one who is greater, who is the Son of God. I don't know what you think about all that. I mean, that makes me smile, right? So I don't, I don't know what you think about, about all that, and I think it's great. I believe that by faith. It makes me smile. It brings joy and peace to my life because, you know what? The Holy Spirit dwells in me, and, and he has allowed me to understand spiritual things that otherwise would be completely foolish to me if I were still in the flesh, I think that all of this is wonderful and true and clear, and I have no objections to this truth about Jesus. However, there may be some here this morning for whom this does not sound all that wonderful or true or clear. And you know what? There, there may still be some objections to these truths that I'm speaking about. And the writer of Hebrews understands this that there will be objections made about Jesus Christ. There will especially be objections about how he is the one and only Savior of the world. You know, people don't like that Jesus is the only way. Therefore, the writer is now going to address some objections that the first century Hebrews would have had about Jesus being this 
eternal high priest. And look, these may not be your same objections. I don't imagine that anyone of you are tempted to go back to animal sacrifice. If not, if, if so, we should talk after service, you know. But, but there may be some objections you have about Jesus, the Son of God, and about his rightful authority to be your Lord and Savior. And I want to tell you that there really are answers to your objections. If you would give an open and honest look to the Bible to find answers, I believe that God can and he wants to dispel any and all objections to the deity and to the humanity of Jesus Christ. He wants you to know the real Jesus. And he really wants you to know what he has done for you, namely that he has died upon a cross for your sins and that he was buried and he rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven and he's in heaven right now living to make intercession for you. He wants you to know that. And not just know that intellectually, but to humbly come and to believe that with your faith, to actually entrust your entire life upon these truths, that they would become to you the most important thing that you're living for, Jesus Christ. And if that hasn't happened for you, I pray that would happen for you today. I pray that you would be so amazed at how God has orchestrated such a wonderful plan for how the Son of God has become the Savior of the world. That today you would accept them as, as that. But not just that Jesus would be the Savior of the world, but that he would be your personal Savior. And so verse 13, I pray will convince you of the greatness of Jesus. Verse 13 says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So the one of whom we're speaking about today is Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh and lived among us. The one who added humanity to his deity. He, he dwelt on this earth about 2,000 years ago when he was born of a virgin in a small little town in Israel called Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, which is also called the city of David. And it's called the city of David because it was the birthplace of that great second king of Israel, King David. And King David was from the tribe of Judah, you know, the tribes of Israel came from Jacob's 12 sons, and Judah was one of them, and that is the tribe where the kings of Israel descended from. And Jesus, who at many times was even called the son of David in the Gospels, was able to trace back his genealogical descent to King David and to the tribe of Judah. And so there's no real objections at least for people who take the Bible to be a historical book, there's no objections to Jesus' ability to be a king. Kings came from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus was from that tribe. However, no one from that tribe ever served at the altar, whether in the temple or in the tabernacle, because to serve at the altar as a priest, you had to trace your genealogical descent back to Aaron and to the tribe of Levi. And look, this is what we might call today a separation of powers. 
In Israel, they had to sort of divide up the responsibilities. And so a person could not hold two offices. You could be a priest if you came from the tribe of Levi. And you could be a king if you came from the tribe of Judah. But you could not be a priest and a king at the same time. That is, unless you are Melchizedek, who is both a king of Salem and priest of Most High God. Are you tracking with this? So a potential objection to Jesus being the great high priest to the Jews is that he did not descend from Levi. He descended from Judah. He can be a king, but he can't be a priest. That is, unless there's another priesthood that Jesus is a part of. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So we know from the genealogical records of the Bible that Jesus did descend from Judah. You know the book of Ruth? You know it was Boaz and Ruth who had Obed, and then Obed had Jesse, and then Jesse had David, and then, yeah, so. By the way, Genealogy in the Bible is really awesome. It's not just a big clump of names that you skip over. It's actually something to study deeply and and to find wonderful meaning. And in the Bible, you could trace back the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Do you know who Adam is? (laughs) The first human being to ever live. So you can trace back the genealogy from Jesus to Adam and and do that sometime and find the very interesting people that are in Jesus' family tree. Prostitutes, all kinds of stuff is in there. But if Jesus came from Judah, we do not find anywhere in the law of Moses someone who served as a priest who came from the tribe of Judah, only from the tribe of Levi. All the priests in the books of Moses were from the Levitical line. Aside from this one guy mentioned twice in the Bible, who was both a priest and a king named Melchizedek. Verse 15 and 16, I hope you can see where this is going. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. I mean, come on. The Holy Spirit had to inspire the Bible because this is amazing stuff. Since Jesus arose from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of kings, Jesus was legally qualified to be the king of Israel, and he is the great king of the Jews. But in order for Jesus to be a priest, the law of Moses stated that he would need to come by bodily descent from the tribe of Levi, but Jesus didn't descend from the tribe of Levi. Therefore, in order for him to be a priest, by necessity, there needed to be another law, and there needed to be another priesthood. And that is where Melchizedek comes in. Jesus arose as high priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. No record of mother or father, no uh, beginning of days nor end of life. He continues a priest forever, and this is how Jesus can be both a king 
and a priest. He is a king after the order of Judah, and he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's why verse 17 quotes Psalm 110, verse 4 again, where the writer proves this with Scripture. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That prophetic oath testifies of Jesus, our great high priest, who serves us eternally as our king and priest. Now, that objection of Jesus, of him, how can he be a priest? He didn't come from Levi. Now that that's out of the way, not that any of you were really stuck on that one today. If you were, I hope it got clarified for you. But now we can move on to how Jesus does serve us from heaven as our priest forever. Verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So what we've discovered here about Jesus. Are you guys, you guys feeling good? kind of sitting up in your seat, still listening, feeling good? Okay. I told you it's meaty stuff. So what we've discovered about Jesus, it's not meant to be just some cool history lesson, right? Although it's, this is some cool stuff, and I have fun with it. But instead, it is meant to change the way that we approach God. There has been a radical change in how we as sinners can approach a holy God. From what was formerly in the Old Covenant, you remember how they approached God in the Old Covenant? In fear, in standing back. You know, the high priest, when he went into the uh, Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, do you know what they did? They put a rope around his leg in case he dropped dead. They could just pull him out. Think about how they approached God then to now in the New Covenant, how we can approach God. There is a change in the way that sinners approach a holy God, and this change is because of Jesus, because of who he is, and because of what he has done for us. The law, with its former commandments, are now set aside. Commandments are set aside not because they were never good. You need to understand something. The law is good. It's really good. But the commandments are set aside because the law could not make us good. The law itself is good. It just can't make you good. And so the former commandments of the law made nothing perfect. The former commandments only revealed that I'm not perfect. And therefore, there is a weakness in the law. You could even say there's a uselessness of the law. But what has been introduced to us now, on the other hand, is a better hope. And Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4, says this better than I would ever be able to say this with my own words. So I'm just going to read what the Bible says about this new covenant we have in Jesus. For God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh, man. I'm just going to say, I hope you get that. I hope you understand that you are not under the law, but you are under grace. I hope you get that. If you don't get that, I don't know that you're a Christian. Truly. See, we have a better hope in Jesus Christ. A better hope has been introduced. Jesus has dealt with sin and the law on our behalf because we could never do it on our own. And if you still think that you can approach God by your own good works as though that's what pleases him, you got it wrong, brother. You have it absolutely wrong, sister. If you think that by your good works, because of how great of a person you are, that that's why you can approach a holy God, you got it absolutely wrong. The only reason you can approach a great and holy God is because we have a great and holy mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who by his blood offered up himself as a sacrifice in order to make us perfect. I need Jesus because it is only through Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, that I can be made perfect by his blood. I need Jesus because it is only through Jesus, the perfect priest, that I can draw near to God. I need Jesus because he is my perfect king. He's my king of righteousness and my king of peace. He has made me righteous in the sight of God, therefore I have peace with God. I need Jesus because I can now boldly access the heavenly altar, God's throne, and I can say, Abba, Father. And there's a better hope in Jesus because he offers us perfect hope. A hope that Abraham, Levi, Moses, Aaron, David, all the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, they longed to see what we see now. The gospel of God's kingdom has now been revealed to us in these last days. And in the next few verses, we're going to see three reasons for why Jesus is our better hope. We're going to go through these rather quickly without much explanation because I, I hope that by now you get the points. So number one, Jesus is our better hope because he was made a priest with an eternal oath. We read that in verse 20 to 21. And it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So the, the Levites proved their priestly status by bodily descent. The priesthood of Jesus was proved because God swore with an oath. He said, you're a priest forever. And the Lord said to my Lord in Psalm 110.4, you're a priest forever. And if God makes an oath like that, well, he never changes his mind. Because God doesn't do that. 
when God makes an oath, when he makes a promise, when he says something like that, he doesn't change his mind. Jesus is our priest forever. Then number two, Jesus is our better hope because he's the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 22 says that. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, a guarantor is like a co-signer. You know, if you're a young person and you don't have enough credit to, you know, go out and buy that nice car you want to get, you might need a co-signer. And why does someone have a co-signer? Well, if you don't have enough credit, you need to have a guarantor, someone who can foot the bill if you can't pay. And Jesus is that for us. And you know what? We all have terrible credit, (laughs) you know, and we could not pay our debt of sin. And Jesus has perfect credit. And so he comes in as our guarantor of the new and better covenant. And he, he said this on the cross, didn't he? He said to Talistai, which means paid in full. Our debt of sin was taken by Jesus, and he has paid it completely and perfectly. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant because you could not pay for it. And he paid for it with his own blood when he died on a cross. And then number three, Jesus is our better hope because he holds his priesthood permanently. And verse 23 and 24 tells us this, where it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. As we read earlier, it is by the power of an indestructible life a life risen from the dead that Jesus can serve forever because although he died, the grave could not hold him. Jesus died not only as the priest, but he died simultaneously as the sacrifice. Jesus did it all. And Jesus did not remain dead. Therefore, he was not replaced by another after him. Jesus rose from the dead the great hope of the gospel. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, what we're doing right now is absolutely ridiculous. But if he did raise from the dead, then he now lives forever and he continues as a priest forever. And what we're doing right now is pretty awesome because we are connecting with the heavenly reality that Jesus is our priest and our king. And no Levitical priest could ever say that. And there were many of them in number. They've all died Some of them even put Jesus to death. But Jesus died on a cross, and he rose from the dead, and that changes the way that you and I live. And it changes our eternal destiny. We will live forever because Jesus lives forever. And then verse 25 to 28 is now the response to those three reasons for why Jesus is a better hope. Let's read them. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Right there at the beginning of verse 25, we read that word, consequently. I like that word. Because it's telling us that because of what we've understood about Jesus today, then there's a result. There's an outcome. There's a conclusion to all these truths about Jesus. So let's not miss it. Have you, have you heard it with faith today? Because it's very important that the things that have been spoken today would be heard with faith. Because verse 25, which I'm going to read again, is the finest morsel of chapter 7. This is the choice piece off the meat, right? It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you think that you are too far from God that he can't save you? Do you think that your sin is too great that Jesus can't forgive you? Do you think, I'm never going to understand all this Bible stuff? Maybe it's just not for me. Do you think, I don't know if I believe these things, they're too hard to understand? Or maybe you can understand these things intellectually, but your heart is hard and you're not willing to understand them spiritually with faith. What objections have you been putting in the way of Jesus? Listen, do you think that I just came out of the womb understanding the things that I've spoken about today? No. How can I do what I've just done today in explaining to you the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I do what I've done in teaching Hebrews chapter 7? Well, I had to be born again. Because spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. Everything that I've said today would have just been like the, you know, the voice from uh, Charlie Brown. If you did not hear with faith and you just missed it all, Jesus is able to save you. Jesus is able to speak to you today. So what objections have you been putting in the way of Jesus? You know, Jesus said, you need but faith of a mustard seed. If you don't know what a mustard seed is, it's small. So although I didn't come out of the womb thinking and believing like this, I understand these things that have been spoken today because I've been born again and because I've matured in my faith. So let me say it again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What we've been taught today in the book of Hebrews is for one reason, and it is for your eternal salvation. The second thing it's for is for your spiritual maturity, that you grow up into understanding these things about your great and glorious Savior, Jesus. 
And Jesus all morning has been praying for you to understand these things so that you can either be saved or so that you can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been praying for you to be drawn to his throne of grace by the things that you've been hearing today by his word. And how do I know that? Because his word tells me that right here. It says he always lives to make intercession for them. I'm really thankful that Jesus isn't the only one interceding for this moment, but there's some people back in the engine room interceding for this moment. There's been people praying this entire service for you to hear the things you've been hearing today and that you'd believe them with faith. So who does Jesus live to pray for? He lives to pray for those who draw near to God through him. He is currently serving in heaven right now as our priest, and Jesus can save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. And I'm so glad that Jesus has saved me. And I'm so glad that Jesus has saved many of you. And I know with a confident hope that if there is anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I know that you are not too far from God's ability to save you. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he lives to make intercession for them. You know, you thought you made the decision to come to church today. And that's true. You made that decision. Maybe someone kind of dragged you here a bit. But you made the decision to come here to church today. But that decision was influenced by the fact that there is a God in heaven who prayed for you to be here today so that you would hear this message. And while you've been listening to the preaching of God's word, Jesus has been interceding for you, meaning Jesus has been praying for you. And I don't know exactly what he's praying, but I would imagine it would be something along these lines. Jesus would be in heaven right now praying, Holy Spirit, speak to him. Holy Spirit, draw her. As my word goes forth, draw these people into me. Let them be drawn into me so that I can save them. And I don't know the exact prayers that Jesus has prayed for me this morning or that he has prayed for you this morning, but I know that he prays for me. I know that he prays for you because he's always living to make intercession because he is our high priest and he sees everything, he knows everything, and he prays for everything. And that's why I have been so bold to proclaim to you today who Jesus Christ is And what he has done for you. Because Jesus is the great king and priest of the most high God. Jesus is the only one who can save sinners. So how fitting is it to have such a high priest. Considering that we are lost and fallen sinners. For it was indeed fitting, verse 26 says, that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. As I end here this morning, Jesus is holy, 
And if you believe in him, he will make you holy. Jesus is innocent. And if you believe in him, he will make you innocent. Jesus is unstained. And if you believe in him, he will make you unstained. Jesus is separated from sinners, but if you believe in him, he will draw near to you as a sinner. And he will separate you from your sin so that you can draw near to him more and more. Jesus is exalted above the heavens, and if you believe in him, you will be seated with him in heavenly places. If you believe in Jesus as your God and Savior, you will have a whole new identity in Jesus Christ who will be to you your great king and priest. He has no need like those high priests to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for those people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So do you realize that your sin has been dealt with once and for all by what Jesus did on the cross when he died there and he thought of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. And while I pray to you right now, I'm so glad to know that my words and my prayers, um, while you have used them today, it has truly been your word and your prayers that have done the work here today. And so, Lord, I want to pray for every person in this room, whether we have believers who've just been reminded of their great salvation that they have in you, um, or maybe there's some here today who have had objections to Jesus, but today those objections have been cleared away and they want to believe in you, Jesus. I pray that right now you would intercede for them, and Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, and that you would save them. Amen.